I'm Nia Clark, host and producer of Dreams of Black Wall Street. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform. Especially if you want to help us get the word out about this history, these stories, and the work we're doing. Thank you so much. Back in 2011, a construction crew was working on a project to build apartments in the Elmhurst community of Queens. As the crew was digging into a pit of land in an abandoned lot with a backhoe, they hit a piece of metal. It turned out to be an iron coffin that contained the well-preserved remains of a Black woman wearing a white gown and knee-high socks. In fact, the body was so well-preserved that the construction workers called the police, fearing the body may be the result of a recent homicide, and initially the area was reported as a crime scene. But when forensic scientists examined the body further, they discovered that it was once a young African-American woman born prior to the Civil War who died from smallpox. Her name was Martha Peterson. As it turns out, the body was discovered on the original site of St. Mark's AME Church, or African Methodist Episcopal Church, Jackson Heights at 9015 Corona Avenue, Elmhurst, New York, which was formerly Union Avenue in Newtown, New York. Newtown was settled by free African-Americans in 1828 after New York State abolished slavery in 1827. According to the PBS station 13, which produced a documentary called Secrets of the Dead, quote, Peterson was the daughter of John and Jane Peterson, prominent figures in Newtown's African-American community. Public records also noted that Martha Peterson lived with William Raymond, the brother-in-law, neighbor, and business partner of Almond Dunbar Fisk, the Iron Coffin creator, end quote. According to the Preservation League of New York State, quote, Finding Martha Peterson revealed the existence of many more unmarked graves. The discovery of this important burial site spurred community activism to save it, and Elmhurst History and Cemeteries Preservation Society, EHCPS, has been working to increase awareness ever since. The League listed this site as one of our seven to save to help draw attention to it and collaborate with community activists who wish to see it landmarked and turned into a public place honoring those buried there, end quote. The Preservation League also notes that what has come to be known as the Elmhurst African-American Burial Ground in Queens was nearly forgotten under new condos before the discovery of Martha Peterson. The League goes on to write, quote, The former owner of the land is St. Mark AME Church. It is now owned by a developer, which had stood on the site until 1930. It is now located in Jackson Heights, Queens. As EHCPS explained in their Seven to Save nomination, in anticipation of their move, the church applied for a permit from the city to transfer all burials to Mount Olivet Cemetery, but the permit was denied. Records indicate that only 20 burials were transferred out of an estimated 300 plus. In 1931, the city demapped the cemetery, leading to it being forgotten. And this lack of recognition is what EHCPS is working to correct. The issue of preserving and properly honoring unmarked burial grounds is something the League is passionate about. 
As unmarked burial grounds are discovered, there's no standard practice for how they're treated and ideally protected. In 2019, the Unmarked Burial Site Protection Act, New York Assembly Bill A5928, was introduced. It is still in committee. Around the same time, Representative Alma S. Adams introduced H.R. 1179, African American Burial Grounds Network Act. Our public policy team is paying special attention to this issue. End quote. Now we'll hear from someone who can help us understand more about Peterson and the 19th century community of Newtown, author, historian, and professor, Dr. Pratiba Kanakamedla. I'm an associate professor of history at Bronx Community College and at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're going to start with Newton, which okay. is in what we know today as Queens. So if you wouldn't mind explaining how the Elmhurst Burial Ground, it was rediscovered in 2011. It's also the center of this huge struggle to preserve it. It's located at 4711 90th Street in Elmhurst, how it is connected to the 19th century African-American community in what was then Newtown and what we know today as Queens. And then what do we know about the African-American woman whose body was found in this iron coffin, preserved quite well actually in the iron coffin that was actually discovered in that burial ground? Sure. So I think the first thing that needs to be said about New York City's history is as long as this city has existed, free black communities have existed. And that is not to take away from the long history of slavery in this city and of enslaved people. But one of the first people of African descent to appear in this city is a free black man. And so when we talk about free black communities in New York City, every borough had a free black community that was thriving. Some were larger than others. I would say preservation efforts and commemoration efforts have been certainly different in the different boroughs. But you know, Newtown had a thriving free black community and it really wasn't all that different, certainly in the early 19th century to maybe the more celebrated communities of Weeksville or that of Lower Manhattan today. So thinking about Newtown, Queens, it was a rural community. It was agricultural. And I think that's what maybe, in a sense, made it fall off the map slightly, where Lower Manhattan was had become the city of New York by the mid-19th century. You know, it's always had that center of capitalism, of economic opportunity, of bustling since the late 18th century. It is very much the city of New York. Brooklyn, by the mid-19th century, certainly on its way to becoming the second largest city in the United States. So it is also part of urban development. Queens is very much rural. It is a series of villages and towns, and Newtown's no different. It is a one-block town. It has a main street running through it, and it really is centered around farmlands, which would have previously been owned by slaveholders. So a lot of the names that we know in Newtown, whether that is Lot, Remsen, those are the descendants of the Dutch and English slaveholders that also existed in Brooklyn or Kings County, for example. 
And in spite of that, we have a small but thriving free black community that exists there during gradual emancipation. And by that, I mean, in 1799, New York State will pass its first gradual emancipation act. It's going to take another 28 years for slavery to end in New York, but there is no black person living in Newtown just waiting around for 1827, which is when slavery will finally end. Far from it, they are community building. They are thinking of the kinds of institutions they will need. They are figuring out what freedom is really going to look like and defining it for themselves come 1827. They are already a free black community, but they really are nuancing. What will sort of equality look like? What will democracy look like post-1827? And really at the center of that community then is a church, and that's the African Methodist Episcopal Church. We know Clarence Taylor, historian Clarence Taylor's work has, you know, shown us this beautifully. Black churches really were at the center of that community, and they were so much more than just sites of faith. They were sites for folks to come together to organize and mobilize, whether that was around voting drives or, you know, thinking about women's rights, education, what would land ownership look like, a property ownership, which was intricately tied to voting at that time. These churches are so much more to those communities than just somewhere to go and pray. And that, of course, brings us to that find in 2011 of the young African-American woman. Her name was Martha Peterson. She was 26 years old. She was the daughter of John and Jane Peterson, who were active members of the free black community in Newtown, Queens. And we know about her because the way in which she memorialized or buried was unusual for its time. Unfortunately, she died of smallpox, which is not unusual for its time, but the casket in which she was placed was made of iron. That tells us something about the family that wouldn't have been an ordinary way to bury you know, our late loved ones, it really would have been something that was only accessible maybe to upper middle classes in New York. So the fact that she was, you know, tells us a slightly different story. So much of the census records and the city directories at that time rightly will emphasize that free black communities are living either on or below the poverty line. And that's to do with racial capitalism. You know, most of them are working as laborers, cart men, boot blacks, blacksmiths, if it's closer to the riverfront, sort of the waterfront, Lake Brooklyn or Manhattan, they're working as dock workers. And yet, in spite of that, you get stories like Martha's. She's buried in this absolutely poetic, beautiful way, in a means that, you know, would have been above sort of the average working salary of some of these jobs that I've described. That's fascinating. You mentioned the church, right? The AME Church, African Methodist Episcopal Church. And I'm so glad you expounded on how they were more than sites of faith, how they really were like centers of organizing for either free Black communities or, you know, Black societies within the larger society at the time. And so we've been able yourself and others, historians have been able to glean some information about the community from the church. I wonder what other empirical evidence is there that kind of gives us sort of a larger idea of what this community was like besides the church. Sure. So, you know, some of the most basic archives that we look at, and the one that actually I think kickstarted this whole research project is MAPS 
right? Maps don't lie. Maps will tell you what was there and sort of the lives that we're walking on today as New Yorkers in terms of the New Yorkers who came before us. So clearly on a contemporary map of that area in Queens was the burial ground. So much of Black life was organizing around maintaining human dignity, right? In the face of white supremacy that took away that sort of basic humanity, Black people were trying to bury their dead to honor them in the afterlife. And so that burial ground is on the map. The AME church is on the map. And then what we do as historians as part of our craft is we start to look further out in the records. So you look at census records from that time, you see who was living on that land. The black press is another great place to look. You know, New York is the home of one of the oldest black press in the country. 1827 Freedom's Journal, the same year as state emancipation will launch and say too long have others spoken for us and local newspapers as well. So there are other ways in which to find and I think to put together and retell the lives of the New Yorkers who came before us. Wonderful. You mentioned the gentleman that came from Calcutta when talking about Lower Manhattan. There were a number of interesting characters during the 19th century, one of them being James Pennington. He was really outspoken when it came to the resistance of slavery and then also racial oppression. So could you just explain his presence in Newtown during this time? And then if there were any other notable African-American leaders or other, what we would probably think of as freedom fighters during that time? Sure, absolutely. So James Pennington has a remarkable life. He's born enslaved in Maryland and in 1827 will escape. And he arrives in Newtown, Queens around 1829 via Philadelphia. And his story really is important for many reasons. One is he shows us that unlike sort of the myths and romanticization that we have around the Underground Railroad, right, that people were coming from the South, escaping through places like Philadelphia, New York, to go to Canada or even upstate New York, actually Pennington shows us that Queens, Brooklyn was a destination. It really always had this reputation because of neighboring Manhattan of being a place where you could find work, right? So yes, freedom, absolutely the ultimate goal. But once you attain that freedom, how are you going to make a living? You know, where are you going to live? Who are your neighbors going to be? Those are all very real material considerations for fugitives coming to the North. So James Pennington attaches himself to the Black church and he writes about it beautifully in his autobiography, The Fugitive Blacksmith. You know, he'll say literacy and his education at the Sunday school in Newtown, Queens, emancipated him from, you know, the kind of racist ideas that he was told about himself his entire life. It emancipated him and liberated his mind to think of both his city and also the town and the region and the country as something that could be better, right? And that the United States was really falling short of its founding ideals. And I think his story also shows us most importantly that the ways in which we tell these stories today, you know, we celebrate quite rightly the African burial ground in Lower Manhattan. We have tons of commemoration around its free black community there. Work is being done and certainly has been done for decades in Brooklyn and its free black community there. And we talk about, you know, the Bronx and Queens, oh, and Staten Island too. But Pennington shows us that actually these free black communities were making those connections in the 19th century. Century, and they weren't existing in silos or vacuums by themselves. So Pennington lives in Newtown, Queens. 
I can only imagine what that commute must have looked like in the face of racism that would have prevented black people from being able to freely get public transportation to places, but also that he's in a very rural place. You know, it's Elmhurst, Queens today, but back then it really is considered sort of the outlands of the city. But he is coming into Brooklyn to work as a coachman for a man called Adrian Van Sinderen in the city, right? So he is making that commute from Queens to Brooklyn. And while working as a coachman in Brooklyn, he sort of becomes part of the thriving free Black community in Brooklyn that is really at the center of advocacy around voting. They are leading anti-colonization meetings, meaning they are pushing against the idea that free Black people belong elsewhere. They should be somehow deported to the new colony in which would become Liberia. So the idea that these free Black communities were existing sort of parallel, but not speaking to one another, I think Pennington's a beautiful example that shows us actually these men and women were making the connections of how to organize between themselves. And, you know, his life is remarkable. We know it because there's so much documentation around it. He may not be allowed to attend Yale Divinity School, but he certainly gets his education there. He, you know, comes back and is a preacher here in New York and is very vocal in the anti-slavery movement. But I think I would also caution for somebody as exceptional as James Pennington, there were hundreds of black men and certainly black women who were standing alongside him on the same platforms demanding the same kind of rights. And I think because of the way, unfortunately, the archives privilege certain voices, and if it privileges any voices, it is always those of black men. I think as a historian or as a researcher or anybody doing work in this area, it's really important that we really mediate upon the lives of black women. Right? Uh, what were black women doing in this time period? In which ways was their, was their labor contributing to these causes? And just because we don't have the written word around it doesn't mean that we sort of engage in that same erasure. So what I like to always think of is, yes, as these black men are meeting in churches or, and they are appearing in the local newspaper or the black press, or they're creating pamphlets around their protest, were black women maybe bringing in a second income so that the family could survive? Were they you know, inviting folks into their homes and really having conversations that were sort of never recorded or made public? Were they organizing in other ways, whether that's fundraising for Black-led institutions? And again, because of our privilege on the written word, that kind of activity is never written down. So my caution is for every exceptional person like James Pennington that we can tell a beautiful story about and his life deserves to be you know, memorialized and commemorated. There are hundreds of people, especially Black women, who are probably standing alongside him doing similar work who also need to be honored as well. Absolutely. And we plan to talk about them during this podcast, so don't worry. <laughs> and you actually touched on one of my other questions, which was about the Underground Railroad. Was there any evidence that the Underground Railroad existed? There's a lot of speculation, but you make the argument that James Pennington is evidence that Underground Railroad did have a presence in Newtown. And, you know, one of the things that made, for example, Lower Manhattan or Brooklyn desirable for people who were escaping slavery because it was easy to blend in. There were so many people there. But I wonder, do you think that the agricultural landscape and actually like the geography of Newtown being so far away from the epicenter of, 
you know, business and society in New York. Do you think that also made it, you know, a desirable place for somebody escaping slavery who really wanted to stay off the radar and be safe? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And thank you. Newtown is founded exactly one year after state emancipation, after slavery ends in New York. And so while the current historic narrative around it is not framed as such, I would say much like Weeksville, it is an intentional community. It is off the map or off the radar, as was Weeksville in its founding in 1838, as was Seneca Village in its founding in 1825. These are places that are outside of city lines. They're certainly away and they offer spaces of safety and refuge in which free black people can live their lives really with dignity away from racial violence and to radically think about what their communities can look like as spaces of joy and happiness so certainly thinking of newtown queens as intentional as somewhere where a person like pennington could just live privately but also intimately right these are small communities in which everybody would have probably known each other's business. So again, thinking about the Underground Railroad, not as people coming and hiding in attics and tunnels, and therefore that's the evidence we're looking for. And that is not to take away from, you know, architectural historians who do great deal of important work in this area. But it's also to say, as a historian, my evidence is always, if you have the evidence of a black church on a map, and you know there was a free black community there, can you tell me why you would not think the Underground Railroad wouldn't have existed there? You know, Black communities really are places of safety and refuge at this time. And they're also places in which they're welcoming of fugitives of their brothers and sisters from the South in order to start their lives. So much of our census records of free Black communities will often show where the head of the household might have been a property owner. They often had borders, and those borders paying rent were from places like Virginia, North Carolina, Maryland. And while I wouldn't want to suggest that all of them are fugitives from the South, you can make sort of a good guess that some of them might have been, and that they're moving to New York not that dissimilar for the reasons a lot of people move to the city today. They're looking for work. They're looking for somewhere they can live and restart their lives. New York has always had this reputation of being a tourist destination, right? Somewhere which dreams come true. And more importantly, there are thriving free Black communities, even as Queens and Newtown is not part of the city of New York proper, but surrounding that area. So they're looking for somewhere where they can belong to a community like all of us are today. So yes, thinking about the Underground Railroad, whenever you see a Black church, a cemetery, you know there's a thriving free Black community. I think the assumption should become that they are part of the Underground Railroad. Hmm. Thank you so much. Finally, what became of Newtown and even the AME Church there? Sure. So Newtown, like so many other places in New York, it really does suffer from when the city consolidates in 1898. When the city of New York is created, i.e. it becomes more than just Manhattan, we get our five boroughs. Newtown Queens starts to slowly change from its very rural agricultural state to more urbanized. And as a result, it's starting to try and impress people in New York City as it's very much part of the city too. So 
Newtown will become renamed in 1897 Elmhurst because they don't want to associate with Massperth. And Newtown, you know, today the creek is still very much a super fun site. Even by the late 19th century, it started to have that reputation. So the residents of Newtown don't want that reputation, so they will rename themselves. And like happens in so many free black communities, emancipation in 1865, federal emancipation will start to change what those communities look like. But also those communities will start to move as a new wave of immigration comes in, that second wave in which we have Italians, you know, European, Eastern European people of Jewish descent immigrating too. So those communities start to dissipate, but there's a long African-American history here in Queens. Even in the 20th century, Corona is thriving in terms of its black history. So even if it doesn't exist in the form that we know it as, that AME church and Newtown, there is a through line, right? It still exists throughout the 20th century. The burial ground and the bodies that were there, are they all still there? Sure. So when the AME church, like so many black churches, starts to lose money and they're looking for somebody to really take over the church and to sort of partner with, they will organize for some of those bodies to be reburied elsewhere. And one of them is up in Westchester and one of them will be Cypress Hills in Queens. So it really is part of a larger thing. Unfortunately, we know that not all of the bodies get reburied. And today, if you go, it is a grocery store, right? It's the empty part of a lot. So it's hard. It's really hard. I think it's what development does in New York City. We build and we build upon the dead. And I think like so much of New York City's history, there is the 19th century history, but then there is always and I hate to say rediscovery, but the retelling of that history, meaning somebody closer to the present, whether that is the African burial ground, whether that's Weeksville Heritage Center, whether that's Hunts Point in the Bronx, people find this history again. And so the movement becomes around commemoration and preservation. And I know there's huge amounts of work being done in that area. Do you think the fact that the bodies, some of them were reinterred in Cyprus, Hills and then also Westchester. Do you think those areas are indications that some of the Black people that were in Newtown then relocated to those areas as well? Sure. Where their dead were? Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think there's two explanations as to why the bodies are reinterred from Newtown, Queens, in Cy to Cypress Hills and then Westchester. Yes, the communities might have moved, but it's also about institutions. Cypress Hills, by this point, is a well-established cemetery. So it is also about finding institutions, even cemeteries, that have the funds and the space to be able to reinter some of these late New Yorkers. So certainly, absolutely, these communities might have moved further east or north, but also just finding institutions that can take on the capacity. Civil War New York, this time in Weeksville, located in present-day Brooklyn. 
Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and drop a comment if you wish. All of this is really helpful for helping us to continue this work.